Join us for Courageous Conversations on August 1st and 2nd. Why? Because we want to demonstrate how to have these conversations on very difficult topics. Many things that we learn are caught, not taught. What better way to catch them than watching 28 scholars and pastors from all across the country doing it? Because I believe that believers should be on the forefront of this. In a divided world, the church should lead on how to have courageous conversations. The goals of Courageous Conversations are simple. We want to get beyond the caricatures that divide us. We want to sharpen one another. We want to build genuine relationships with those who think differently. We want to provide a safe space for dialogue and demonstrate how to effectively discuss controversial issues with people who think differently and to show the world the diversity of thought within black churches. That's why we're going to talk about those topics relevant for the church and the culture like hell, Paul sexual ethics, how to interpret the Old Testament, things we know that they disagree on, but to have a respectful conversation to demonstrate something that I think that the church should be leading on, how to have courageous conversations. So join us on August 1st and 2nd in Atlanta, Georgia for the second annual Courageous Conversations. Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jew3 Project. And today, um, I'm having a special host uh, that's going to be asking me questions about courageous conversations. We did the same thing last year um, to go over the topics, and we're going to do it again this year just to prepare uh, for another year of some courageous conversations. So without further ado, your guest host today, Mr. Malik Blake. Welcome, Malik. Having me again, Lisa. I feel like an honorary host. This is probably my third or fourth time hosting, so I appreciate you bringing me back. I'm glad I haven't said anything that got me in trouble. So Amen to that. Uh, I'm looking forward to courageous conversations this year. I plan on being there. I was there last year for the first one. And I think the conversations that were had were needed uh, and ultimately helpful, I think, in the sense of we, and oftentimes we know that people have differing views in us, but we don't take the time to talk to them about those views. We just have a caricature of what people like that think. Um, but it's always secondhand. So I think courageous conversations creates a space for us to really talk to the opposing side and at least understand what the other side is saying. Uh, I worked with a debate coach recently and he said that one of the biggest things he wants to teach his, his students is that you need to be able to articulate your opponent's view to their liking. If you aren't able to do that, then you really don't need to gauge, engage in trying to speak. Uh, but today we're gonna take some time to talk about the conversations that you're having at this year's Greatest Conversations and hopefully shed some light on what we're going into. Because I know some of these topics, depending on how learned you are in terms of Bible history, theology, and doctrine, you might think, well, why is that conversation even happening? So to jump in, let's start with the first one. And it's the conversation on the nature of hell. Does anyone go there? So could you tell us a little bit more about why this conversation is necessary and what the differing views are concerning this topic? So we want to have a discussion and um, the title is called Rethinking Hell. And it's about, like you said, what is the nature of hell? Does anyone go there? Because there was a, um, there's been several 
Um, you had Rob Bell, you had Carlton Pearson, um, you had um, in the um, uh, in the Black gospel context, um, Tim Rogers um, saying hell doesn't exist, um, or not, I don't know if he said hell doesn't exist, uh, but we, we're not going there, or uh, Carlton Pearson, who doesn't, who used to believe in hell, but doesn't believe anymore, he believes that Jesus was atonement for all, and so um, there's various views, there's a universalist, Christian universalist view, which suggests that Jesus atoned uh, for all, his death atoned for all, so there's no need to repent, we will all go um, to heaven. Um, there is a view of annihilation, that we just cease to exist, um, or that we have a annihilation, those who don't go to heaven will, some will be tortured for a time, and then they will cease to exist. It won't be an eternal torment. Um, and then you have the everlasting torment view. Um, and then there is some who, you know, in the Catholic um, denomination will hold to a purgatory um, type view. Um, so there's differing views um, on hell. And I think a lot of times we, if we do believe in hell, um, we, we haven't studied it thoroughly enough to articulate why we believe that position. So I think if anything, hearing the opposing position allows us to sharpen ours and um, also allows us to understand how a person got there. I think that's where we draw our empathy from, understanding the person's journey to get you to their conclusion helps us empathize even if we disagree. And then we'll know how to better engage them. Definitely. And you mentioned Carlton Pearson. I know a lot of people watch the Come Sunday document uh, movie on Netflix, and I think they got a lot of people talking. Uh, and the reality is, he was very prominent within a lot of church spaces, uh, and then he evolved in his views, and it began to divide some. So once again, I think having these types of conversations show you that that other is not necessarily so far away. That other might be a lot closer than you think. So once again, the conversations are necessary. And the, the difficulty that a lot of people had is they were close to him and did ministry with him and then his views evolved and they were conflicted because they actually cared about him as a person. So I think that puts us in a position where it's important to think through it because sometimes you don't realize the necessity of uh, engaging people in a charitable way until you have a sharp divide with somebody you care about. Yeah, and two, I think one of the things is that people who um, I, I embrace uh, more um, traditional view eternal conscious torment um of, of hell uh, but i understand the other positions i understand how people get there and why they get there and i think even those people who are like me that embrace in an eternal conscious torment position um within church arenas there hasn't been a lot of consistency uh, from our pulpit so they'll be preaching on it but when it comes to 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 funerals, everybody goes to heaven. So I've heard jokes on this. Um, you know, you hear people saying, uh, you know, well, we'll see them on the other side and they never proclaim to to be a believer or they went to heaven and they never um gave their life to Christ. And so um when the rubber meets the road, a lot of people are practical inclusivists uh, when it comes to uh eternal eternal um eternal state 
Um, but in proclamation, they would say, they would say, so no, a lot of people are practically um, Christian universalists, I believe, uh, but um, they would say they hold the position of a co eternal conscious torment, but in actual practice, um, they struggle with how to navigate that. And I'm not saying that a funeral you can demand about to hell, but I am saying that sometimes it's better to be silent than if you embrace the position, give comfort where there might not necessarily be um, uh, a better on the other side. Uh, so that's, that's the challenging thing. So I think we have to really wrestle with if we really do believe it exists, even if we say we do. Um, and how does that inform how we live in the present? And then too, right. I think even with that, there's this whole concept that held as a construct of white supremacy that it was a tool of oppression and to make uh, slaves say um, obedient. So we have to deal with that and why seeing it that way could really, if a person does see it that way as a tool of oppression um, given by white slaveholders, then we have to wrestle with understanding why one would believe that, right? Um, just like the whole concept of Christianity being a white man's religion helps navigate them through and understand that concept and why it's difficult for people. So I think that's where the grace, the nuance, and the conversation needs to have, happen. And I think that's a great segue bringing up white supremacy because I think in, in my case, uh, I spent some time studying in white evangelical schools. And a lot of times they had a hard time wrestling with the idea of systemic sin. Uh, so, and I think it's plainly obvious for some, but once again, it's good to have a conversation. So the next conversation we'll cover is the nature of sin, systemic, personal, or both. So why do you think that that's a necessary conversation to have? Well, I think on both sides, when I've been in conservative or progressive spaces, there tends to be a focus on one or the other. Um, and I think, so I would say in, in progressive and conservative academies. Um, I think in black church, we have a good grip that there's the both and that we fight for um, justice and also uh, fight for, uh, and also know the importance of personal piety. Um, because I mean, you, it is the people that make up the systems. So if the person doesn't have a personal standard of uh, in which they know what's right or wrong, then it's going to be hard for them to find systems that are right and wrong. So they work they they work hand in hand. You can't have really one without the other. And so I think, you know, just talking about why there's the divide there in the academy and in um, spaces, and also how do we bridge that gap and how we think um, how we've maybe only thought about sin in one way and not been holistic in our thinking systemically and for personal piety. Um, I think um, in some more progressive spaces, the emphasis on systemic um, is, in is rightfully in response to the hypocrisy of conservative spaces. Um, and so um, it is a reaction a correcting of what has been um, um, used um, and perverted. So 
I think it's important to have that conversation. We have four scholars to help us in religion or in systematic theology. They have some in ethics working together to talk about this from progressive and conservative spaces. So I'm really excited. And I don't think that's ever happened in the African-American context for this, these particular topics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great to be the, the spearhead of something new and, uh, and progressive in the sense of it's, I don't think there's anything comparable to this that's going on or that has happened at this level. So it's, it's, it's necessary. And I think the response from last year shows that people are, are looking to be challenged with their thinking. Uh, the day of echo chambers is soon fading away. But uh, the next conversation is on Paul's sexual ethics. So when I, when I see that, I think this is volatile because I know today's culture, which is, I would say, hypersensitive. So you definitely can't say anything about gender, sexuality without offending someone or stepping on some toes and potentially getting canceled. So tell us why you're wanting to jump in that lake of fire. <laughs> I think um, if we wanna be culturally relevant, we have to talk about the things that are hard. Um, and this is a topic that is that nobody really wants to touch. Um, and I think we talk about like the, what, what comes from the fruit of the view without like walking back, like let's look and dissect what time was Paul in, who was he speaking to, um, how should we interpret that today? Um, and so looking at it in a holistic um, perspective with scholars on, on both sides, because I think one of the things the misnomers is that if you take a progressive view, then you're taking a scholarly view, right? Without really understanding that there's scholarship on both sides. And so um, you can't say that I'm just taking this view because this is a scholarly view and, and throw out another, another set of scholarship. And I think it's important that we're intellectually honest about that. And so I think this calls us to wrestle with it. And uh, I'm interested to see <laughs> how Dr. Esau McCauley, uh, Dr. Angela Parker, um, Dr. Margaret Amer, and Dr. Dennis Edwards. Um, I know they've been working hard on, um, on just the being prepared for the conversation. So I'm excited to see how they navigate with the information. And one of the reasons Paul is so important and crucial for the black context is because Paul was used as a tool of oppression for us. So for many people, um, Paul's words are hard to stomach for those on the margins, right? Um, I think about Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited and him going to Daytona and reading um, uh, scripture to his grandmother and she would never let him read Paul's letters and finally he got the courage to ask her, why can I read Paul? And she said, my slave master used Paul to oppress me and I vow never to read him again. And so we see um, for many that Paul has been uh, used um, as, a, as a tool to, to further oppress those on the margin. So because of that, I think we need to talk about his words in light of gender and sexuality 
um, especially in this culture today. So I'm excited to see the discussion and I hope that people will let this be a safe space and won't allow um, their uh, frustration to um, cause them to, to jump and say things about things that aren't necessarily true or they don't fully know about. Um, last year, I remember as I was reading the comments and they were many um, <laughs> and they were uh, very interesting. Somebody said that uh, they didn't feel like Jude 3 um, handled, um, alluded to the fact that they don't feel like Jude 3 as an organization cared about um, the fact that LGBTQ people were being murdered. And um, I think I took issue uh, with that. First of all, it was there when I saw that, I was like, wow, that's interesting. Um, because many people don't know that my aunt was brutally murdered um, and she was a part of the LGBTQ community. Um, and so she was murdered by her partner um, very violently. And so I think when somebody put that, they made an assumption that they didn't know that was connected to a personal experience that really was triggering for me. And I had to like, really like step back and was like, man, I want to respond to this. Um, but I said that to say, sometimes we make really ill-informed assumptions when it comes to the topic, when it comes to this topic, because it's so volatile and because people have reactions based on experience. And it's important that we not put stuff out there without even asking the person, because this particular person had the opportunity to ask me or voice that to me, but went to social media instead. And so I think it's important that we, we consider that people have personal experiences connected to these things and that we should be more careful when we have frustrations, even the ways in, in which we think they could have handled things better. So I hope that provides some, some help and framing for how we engage on these, um, uh, our social media platforms. I think that's a perfect example or perfect uh, argument for why you're having conversations rather than debates, because oftentimes when folks enter into a debate, have the posture of winning. Uh, so regardless of what the other party presents to you, you still have the end goal, you have tunnel vision of, of articulating your point, regardless of what they say, essentially. And essentially, you want to just tear apart whatever they say. And if you're just trying to win, then you may not give opportunity for uh, feelings to come into the picture. A lot of times, debates are just be dealing with facts. But I think as Christians, we need to leave room for feelings and conversation. And then that's to affect how you respond. It's not to say that feelings control everything. But I think your personal experience, even as you just presented that now, uh, I think sheds light on the fact that, hey, I have this view but this is an experience. And I think any charitable or reasonable person would pause when hearing that story you just shared and take a step back. At that point, they're not still trying to win, but it's, well, let me identify with this potentially traumatic situation. So conversations leave room for that, assuming that both parties engaging are mature enough to recognize that the end goal shouldn't be winning, 
but understanding the other party and articulating your side in a clear and respectful way. The next conversation is preaching to black millennials. I have a heart for this as a millennial because I feel like in, for years I've sat in church and I think an older generation of churchgoers had a culture of just being a cheerleader for the pastor, regardless of what he was saying. Like the pastor may say, turn in your Bibles to the book of Job. Amen. Yeah. And it's just like, he just told you to turn the page. You know, he's not even preaching yet. So like there was just this, I think many, I do think many do sit in church and may not understand what's being preached, but their natural response is to support and just do the motions without actually receiving the truth of the word of God. And I would say millennials are at a point where we not only listen in, with intent, but we also ask questions. And you know, that same generation says, don't question God. So this preaching to black millennials conversation, that I just gave my two cents for why I think it is going to be helpful and that conversation is needed. But what got you to the point where you thought that that would be a helpful conversation to have? Um, because statistics are showing us and, um, that black millennials are leaving churches. Um, and they're, they're going to other things, more of a spirituality aspect. And many that I talk to find um, more healing and transparency in conversations around brunch with friends than in church community. And so um, a generation ago, church was a solace. Church was the place that Black people went for dignity, community. Um, there was so much that the church for Black people provided as a faith space, right? That's why when, when they started burning churches, it's like, how are you burning our faith space? You know, um, and so it's, a, it's important that for us to understand that for the millennial generation, they no longer see church as a faith space. In, in millennial generation, they see church as a place that's toxic. Um, they don't feel like it's transparent. They have issues with leadership not being um, honest about uh, their, their personal struggles. They have issues with pastors not always being faithful to their, their spouse or they have challenges with not engaging um, policy um, with our current administration. They have a plethora of issues. Um, and so the church for them becomes a place that's toxic, not helpful. And that's not every millennial because there's plenty of millennials that go to church. There's plenty of millennials that flock to um, non-denominational churches. They're leaving more traditional churches. So there's, there's a give and take there. But I do think there's a great number that I think we need to think through um, that are in our pews that are towing on leaving. And they're like, you know, I'm one foot in and one foot out. And I think for many preachers, there are ways in which to gain millennials back to the church has been putting a young preacher up to preach. And it's always funny if you've been to any church, black church long enough, um, especially a more traditional black church, when they have a youth revival, they bring a young person in. But the funny thing is the young person doesn't really preach to the kids because they want to get noticed by the adults. So they start preaching like the adults to the adults 
because they want to be seen as the they want to be noticed as a, a an adult preacher so oftentimes the kids are left out and then by the time they get to the age where they have the option to come to church they don't um and so i think it's important that we engage black millennials and i'm really excited about the list of black millennials we have we have dr brianna parker who does extensive research on black millennials her book um what google can't teach you um is out now and i encourage you to get it it's a great resource um, we have Dr. Charles Goodman, and what I love about Dr. Goodman is his church is about, I think, 8,000, but he has a large group of millennials, but he also is a um, um, multi-generational church, so um, he has all ages in there, so he's not just preaching. His preaching has to be geared towards all ages, and so I think that's important because oftentimes we have conversations, uh, we have sermon series catered towards young people and then forget the old people and it's like you got to hit everybody in there at one time which is which is a difficult task for pastors we have pastor mark mcclure mike mcclure who has the fast growing church in birmingham alabama a lot of young adults uh more non-denominational feel and then you have uh jackie hill perry who has a huge black um young adult following um and has developed a unique way of ministering through them, through rap, through art, through preaching. And so I think um, I love it because all of these people are actually, they're millennials and they're reaching their peers. And so I think it's important that we learn from them. Sure. I'm glad you mentioned the whole uh, having a young preacher come in and then that young preacher putting on his old school preaching style to appeal to the older people. Because I had similar issues when I, years ago, when I was preaching more, I was invited to preach at a church back in, in Maryland. And it was a youth service, young adult service. It was for young people, I think, from like 12 to 24 in that age bracket. And I get there and everything about this is supposed to be for young people. And I get there and then 90% of the people there were over 40 years old. And it's like, I, I've seen that frequently where it's like churches say that they're doing things for youth or young adults, whatever the case may be, but it's not connecting. And I didn't choose to do this there because I was a guest, a guest and I didn't want to start any trouble. But what I thought to myself was, hey, they might need to rethink their plan. If you're having something that's for this age bracket, but you're not getting them at all, then rethink your approach. And, just, you know, don't assume that what has always worked will always work and don't prioritize the older people over the younger people just because they give more because that happens a lot but that's another conversation <laughs> for another day uh discerning truth what's that conversation going to be about um discerning truth is a very important conversation as as an apologist um my eyebrows raise every time i hear somebody say my truth um but really you know as i as as you listen, what a person usually is trying to convey is my experience. And so I liken it to um, we have these experiences in life, and then we have how things, how we think things should be. Um, so the American dream, people say, well, this is the American dream. This is what's possible in America because of the structures that. Um, we have the pursuit of happiness um, and, and um, the Declaration of Independence and all men are created equal. But the black 
it's like, yes, that constitution, that is true. But the Black experience hasn't always been consistent with what we have in the constitution. And so that is true for the U.S., but it's not the true experience of, of Black people in America. We were treated as three-fifths. We were, we were um, they had us as three-fifths of a person. We weren't even a whole human um, in, in their minds. So there is, okay, America's truth, but it's inconsistent with the Black reality. And so um, we would say the Black truth, the American truth. You know, you see what I'm saying? And so I think it's important that we talk about like, what is truth? What is right or wrong? How, is, how do we know what is true? And also, um, when we think about truth in the Bible, has the Bible always been consistent? So if we would say like that, you know, we know truth is found and rooted in the word of God. And then we look in the word of God and this is one common thing. So the Bible says, do not lie. Um, but then we see Rahab lying and her lie says, the children of Israel, right? And so it's like, well, is it is it okay sometimes? Is this true sometimes or is it true um, other times? So I think wading through those waters is helpful because I think people are looking at passages like that are really raffling. Um, if the Bible is absolute truth and the word of God and we should govern our life by it. What do we think about these texts that seem to be inconsistent with the commandments? Um, and so I think, um, talking about discerning truth and how do we do that um, is important. Right. Yeah. We definitely are in the culture of my truth, your truth, the truth. And because I think we're trying to be so PC, we end up saying that everything's true. When in actuality, that's not possible because some of the truths articulate that the other ones claiming to be true aren't true, kind of like Jesus, you know, is the only way. So you can't be Buddhist and, and Christian. You just can't. So, you know, that conversation needs to happen in the church, but also outside the church. You're just being realistic about the fact that truth divides. Truth isn't like this PC thing that just lets everybody have their version of it and we all can live peaceably. No, truth divides. Facts are real. Um, and we need and there to can accept be no, that. And there could be no no justice without a absolute standard right so you can't if, if truth is relative then we have no premise in which to gauge justice um and so i think you know we have to think about how does our thoughts about truth inform our views of justice um because i can't hold people accountable if i get to decide what's true for me and true for another person um, I, I can't hold people accountable if I give everybody the autonomy to decide truth. Then there can be no justice because everybody has their own truth or view of right or wrong. And so, um, and that's what we're seeing now. Um, it's funny to me that maybe a few years ago, more progressive, um, and I'm talking about political world, was calling for more relativity in truth but now, because of uh, our current administration, we have like things about facts and no, this is absolutely true. It's not like there's no fluctuation, these are right or wrong because the administration, we're like, we're trying to hold you accountable 
And then it seems like those who said the conservative political party were saying, no, there's absolute truth. There's absolute right or wrong. Now, because of the administration has become relative in their thinking of truth. So it's, it's actually flipped and it's funny um, to watch. Well, it's not funny because this administration is really, really problematic, but <laughs> it is interesting to see how the changes have shifted based on, based on the person's interest. Um, and so I think that's really, really an interesting case study. Yeah, the party of the conservative evangelicals is also the party of alternative facts. So how far we, we fallen. Uh, next conversation, interpreting the Old Testament in light of the new discipline it probably be a bit deeper and for the more studied as far as trying to understand how the, the testaments interact with each other. I know some who, in, in discipleship, I always introduce people to the, the New Testament first. Just It tends to be easier to read something like Proverbs. But I know a lot of times that that happens at the expense of the Old Testament. There's a lot there, too, uh, that we shouldn't throw away. So... Could you share the inspiration behind having the conversation interpreting the Old Testament in light of the New, but also what you expect the different opposing views to bring out? So this topic for me is oh, a favorite of mine because I'm an Old Testament person. I love the Old Testament. I'll probably spend more time in the Old Testament than the New. My favorite book is so random. A pe that's usually not people's favorite book. My favorite book is Ezekiel. Um, <laughs> uh, so like this is I love the Old Testament that's one my wheelhouse and so um, I think people struggle with um, how do we interpret the Levitical laws how should we think about that in light of um, what Jesus did on the cross um, how should we think about some of the things that happened in the Old Testament um, as it relates to women um, and sexuality, how, how should we be thinking about those things? And I think, especially in our time, um, we're in apologetics, where we deal with like groups like Hebrew Israelites that use passages in the Old Testament um, incorrectly uh, because not necessarily knowing how to uh, flush out the old in light of the new, this conversation is really important. And I think a lot of people get caught up into believing kind of left stuff because they haven't processed how should we think about the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. Um, and so I'm excited to have four, um, four Bible scholars. Um, Dr. Judy Fentress Williams was with us last year. She'll be with us again this year. And um, she is a beast at, at Old Testament. I remember listening to her um, when I was in um, seminary. And so I really, what I really am excited about is because I get to give people a taste of how I wrestled in seminary and how um, I would take, you know, Dr. Judy um, was trained in the more progressive spaces. And then I was in seminary, the conservatives, and I would kind of mess those together and come up with like, okay, I see that perspective, I see this perspective. So it's been so helpful to, for me in my formation to have both perspectives. And so 
Uh, we have Dr. Quinnequia Day, um, well, soon to be Dr. Quinnequia Day. She teaches at Gordon Conwell. Um, so that's it. Obviously, Gordon Conwell is going to be a more conservative space. We have Dr. Cleo uh, Robertson coming back, um, teaches at Alliance. So that's a more conservative space. And then we have Dr. Vanessa Lovelace, who teaches. Um, and congratulations to her. She just got um, a promotion at ITC um, that's in, in Atlanta. Uh, in Old Testament. So I'm I'm just excited to have these perspectives colliding, um, just to have a conversation. I think that's going to be very, very helpful um, to all those who hear it. Let me add this tag because I know they're going to jump on me. I, I misspoke. I meant what I was trying to say uh, before before you went in on, on points you were making that uh, Proverbs is one of the few books that I can point them to that's easier to read, easier to pick up. So I just want to clarify that. Uh, so you should start right in the judges. I mean, start right there. That's the easy yeah. chronicle. That's another one of my favorite chronicles. First and second, yeah. Chronicles. That's second yeah. There's a lot there that uh, tends to get overlooked because it might be harder to read, but it takes more historical understanding, and that it's worth the work. Uh, or you can just read in the message. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I love the message driver, so I'm not even shade anybody. I like to read the Old Testament message. The divided mind of the church, and of course, this is speaking in terms of the Black church specifically. Uh, so when I hear divided mind, I think hypocrisy, I think double life, I think saying one thing and doing another. So of course, that can't be happening in the church, right? So the divided mind, um, it, it comes from the book of the wonderful book by Dr. Raphael Warnock, I encourage you to get it called The Divided Mind of the Black Church, and in which he makes the statement that really gripped me that um, the church either is focused on the sin of slavery or the slavery of sin. And I was like, wow, I never, I love the way he put that together, together because I do think when we think about the divided mind in the Black church, there is some that are kind of social justice focused solely, and then there's some that are focused solely on personal piety. So that is the slavery, overcoming the, the slavery of sin. And then you have some that are focused on the sin of slavery. And I just think um, that's one of the ways in which we get divided. And then I do think the other di divided aspect is that sometimes we, we, we go to schools and seminaries and, and most black preachers that have went to seminary um, in large part go to more progressive um, seminaries because they're more welcoming to black people. I mean, that's just the reality. Uh, the fact that I cannot find um, a, that it's like finding a needle in a haystack to find a black woman with a PhD from in theology and biblical studies from a conservative evangelical seminary is an indictment to them on not caring or even recruiting um, in, uh, for Black women. And the fact that there are so few uh, Black men who have PhDs in theology and biblical studies for that institutions, and then so many in the, in the other space, is, it shows why more people will, will, will are more um, they feel more wanted in that in that place um, because 
I mean, we've done seminary while black episodes. Sometimes conservative evangelical spaces aren't the most welcoming to to those with melanin. Like no us. way, no way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who would have thought it, right? Um, so because of that, um, people come out maybe with different views than the church in which they commit themselves to. Um, so they might not believe in the statement of faith that their denomination or their church espouses, but they'll preach it because it is what the church will accept, but it's not what they believe. And so um, that's a divide in itself. Um, so I think um, there's a divide often in black churches between the pulpit and the pew, what you learn in seminary and what you preach on Sunday um, and whether you believe it. And so I think that's some things we're gonna you know, discuss. And I'm really excited about this year because every, every, um, every discussion is an hour and 30 minutes long. Last year, they were only an hour. And um, it's broken up really strategically this year. Uh, we learned from last year, the first 15 minutes, we're gonna talk about our presuppositions. Uh, because sometimes in, in these spaces, you know, progressives look at conservatives like, oh, you're a sellout. And then, you know, conservatives might look at uh, progressives like, oh, you don't believe in the Bible. Or, you know, there's these extreme caricatures. So we want to deal with those as best we can in 15 minutes, which is a large task. Um, but address those before we get into the bulk of the conversation, which will be 45 minutes. And then we leave space at the end of 30 minutes for Q&A. Um, because we want people to be able to express how they got to a position uh, without being judged for um, their journey. And so, um, and so I hope, I'm praying, you know, that we be thoughtful and we be respectful to those people who differ from us after this event is over on social media. I saw the comments. Some of y'all were a bit cruel um, <laughs> last year <laughs> to people who y'all didn't agree with. And just because I didn't respond doesn't mean I'm not aware of the things that were said. Um, so I think it's important that we take in consideration that these are real people who are wrestling with real things. And if you are deeply, deeply concerned about where they're going or addressing their position. Number one, pray for them. Number two, attempt to address them. Most of the people that were there, their emails are public information, especially if they're academic. Address them directly, sending them an email with your concerns and then try to have a conversation with them there. And then once you do that, say, hey, I feel like you address this on a public platform. I want to respond to you um, in a public way because I believe that a public, um, your public proclamation deserves a public response. But don't jump to do that immediately. Start with prayer, reaching out, and then inform them that you're going to do that. Because I think that just creates a healthier way of communication. Um, so that would just be my my two cents. If you could you could say what you want to say about uh, the person, 
but you have to think, do I want to win the argument or do I want to win the person? And I think we just need to be wiser if we claim to be children of God and that are known, we're identified, Jesus said, by the way we love each other. I don't think the ways in which sometimes we blast each other on social media is very loving uh, in the name of God. So, Yeah, I was always taught to address people directly. That's just me. But I do think this is a bit of a double standard, so I'll give you that. But I get doubly irritated when I see specifically grown men being passive aggressive with people they disagree with on social media or in whatever case. I just think it's the worst. Like if you have an issue with someone or a disagreement, specifically as Christians, because pastors are the one I'm talking about, <laughs> uh, address these people. You know, subtweeting is is childish. Uh, so let's have the conversations that are necessary to deal with whatever the issues are. And if there's an agreement, allow that to be, but create a space for a conversation. Because um, the thing the thing with subtweeting and being passive is because it's not direct, the person you have directed it to may not catch it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. better to just be direct with whatever your critique or concern is. Yeah. So for those that are interested in attending, could you tell them the date, location, and how they can register? Uh, the event is August 1st and 2nd in Atlanta, Georgia at the Greater Pine Grove Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and you can register at CourageousCombos.org. That's CourageousCombos, C-O-N-V-O-S dot org. Um, early registration ends on June 1st. So if you want to ca- take advantage of this early bird rate, which is only $65 for two days, I um, think you should just go head on to CourageousCombos.org and register. Um, and bring a friend. Don't come along. Bring a friend. I think it's great for conversation. I think it's even good that you bring your friend that is on the opposite end of the spectrum as you. Um, so y'all be able to have some conversations and be like, oh, man, that's what I was trying to articulate. Um, sometimes people put language to what you've been trying to articulate um, to, to your friend. And so um, that's important to bring someone with you that doesn't necessarily agree with you. Um, because I think in this divided world where people are so hostile on social media, what we want to model for people is how to have these conversations civilly. Um, because I, I say all the time, if anybody should be leading on this issue, it should be the church. And the way we treat one another, the way we treat people that we disagree with, really is a testament to the world of who we are in Christ and the God we serve. And Jesus said he prays that we are one this, this, um, him and the father are one. So um, I think it's important. So I'll see you there on August 1st and 2nd. And thank you so much, Malik, uh, for hosting. And um, I will see you there also um, on August 1st and 2nd. And um, yeah, until next time, remember here at G3, we're helping you know what you believe and why you believe it. Also, if you would like to become a monthly partner with us, you can do so at g3project.com and hit the donate tab. We appreciate you. Until next time, have a great one. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged 
in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.